This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello and welcome to another edition of Witnesses of History for the beginning of October and we're looking at birds in the air, often coming down. We start with George Shelvock's report from the 1st of October 1719, a report which, when Samuel Coleridge read it, was inspired to write The Ancient Mariner. At seven in the evening, as they were furling the mainsail, one William Camel cried out that his hands and fingers were so benumbed that he could not hold himself But before those that were next to him could come to his assistance, he fell down and was drowned. The cold is certainly much more insupportable in these than in the same latitudes to the northward, for although we were pretty much advanced in the summer season and had the days very long, yet we had continual squalls of sleet, snow and rain, and the heavens were perpetually hid from us by its gloomy, dismal clouds. In short, One would think it impossible that anything living could subsist in so rigid a climate, and indeed we all observed that we had not had the sight of one fish of any kind since we were come to the southward of the Straits of La Mer. Not one seabird, except a disconsolate black albatross who accompanied us for several days, hovering about us as if he had been lost himself till Hartley, my second captain, observing in one of his melancholy fits that this bird was always hovering near us, imagined from his colour that it might be some ill omen, that which I suppose induced him all the more to encourage his superstition was the continued series of contrary tempestuous winds which had oppressed us ever since we had got into this sea. But be that as it would, he, after some fruitless attempts, at length shot the albatross, not doubting, perhaps, that we should have a fair wind after it. Well, another sort of bird, perhaps, now from nearly 200 years later. Previous reading was the 1st of October 1719. This is the 1st of October 1916, and Michael McDonough's report of the end of Zeppelin L31. I saw last night what is probably the most appalling spectacle associated with the war which London is likely to provide, the bringing down in flames of a raiding Zeppelin. I was late at the office, and leaving it just before midnight, was crossing to Blackfriars Bridge to get a tramcar home, when my attention was attracted by a frenetic, frenzied cries of, Oh, oh, she's hit! from some wayfarers who were standing in the middle of the road, gazing at the sky in a northern direction. Looking at the clear run of Newbridge Street and Farringdon Road, I saw high in the sky a concentrated blaze of searchlights, and in its centre a ruddy glow which rapidly spread into the outline of a blazing airship. Then the searchlights were turned off, and the zeppelin drifted perpendicularly in the darkened sky, a gigantic pyramid of flames, red and orange, like a ruined star falling slowly to earth. Its glare lit up the streets and gave a ruddy tint even to the waters of the Thames. 
The spectacle lasted two or three minutes. It was so horribly fascinated that I felt spellbound, almost suffocated with emotion, ready hysterically to laugh or cry. When at last the doomed airship vanished from sight, there arose a shout like the one of which I never heard in London before, a hoarse shout of mingled execration, triumph and joy a swelling shout that appeared to be rising from all parts of the metropolis, ever increasing in force and intensity. It was London's tedium for another crowning deliverance. Four Zeppelins destroyed in a month. On getting to the office this morning, I was ordered off to Porter's, Potter's Bar, Middlesex, where the Zeppelin had been brought down about 13 miles from London. These days, trains are infrequent and travel slowly at a war economy. The journey from King's Cross was particularly tedious. The train I caught was packed. My compartment was had its 20 seats occupied and 10 more passengers found standing room in it. The weather, too, was abominable. Rain fell persistently. We had to walk the two miles to the place where the zeppelin fell and over the miry roads and sodden fields hung a thick, clammy mist. I got from a member of the Potter's Bar anti-aircraft battery an account of the bringing down of the Zeppelin. He said that the airship was caught in the beams of three searchlights from stations miles apart and was being fired at by three batteries also from distances widely separated. She turned and twisted, rose and fell in vain attempts to escape to the shelter of the outer darkness. None of the shells reached her. Then an aeroplane appeared and dropped three flares, the signal to the ground batteries to cease firing as he was about to attack. The airman, flying about the Zeppelin, let go rounds of machine gun fire at her without effect, until one round fired into her from beneath set her on fire, and down she came, a blazing mass roaring like a furnace, breaking as she fell into two parts which were held together by internal cables until they reached the ground. The framework of the Zeppelin lay in the field in two enormous heaps, separated from each other by about a hundred yards. Most of the forepart hung suspended from a tree. The crew numbered 19. One body was found in the field some distance from the wreckage. He must have jumped from the doomed ship from a considerable height. So great was the force with which he struck the ground that I saw the imprint of his body clearly defined in the stubbly grass. There was a round hole for the head, then deep impressions of the trunk with outstretched arms, and finally the widely separated legs. Life was in him when he was picked up, but the spark soon went out. He was in fact the commander who had been in one of the gondolas hanging from the airship. With another journalist I went to the barn where the bodies lay. As we approached we heard a woman say to the sergeant of the party of soldiers in charge, May I go in? I'd like to see a dead German. No, madam. We cannot admit ladies, was the reply. Introducing myself as a newspaper reporter, I made the same request. The sergeant said to me, if you particularly wish to go in, you may. I would, however, advise you not to do so. If you do, you will regret your curiosity. I persisted in my request, explaining to the sergeant that I particularly wanted to see the body of the commander. I was allowed to go in. The sergeant removed the covering from one of the bodies which lay apart from the others. The only disfigurement was a slight distortion of the face. It was that of a young man, clean-shaven. He was heavily clad in a dark uniform and overcoat with a thick muffler round his neck. 
and knew who he was. At the office, we had had official information of the identity of the commander and the airship, though publication of both particulars was prohibited, and it was this knowledge that had determined me to see the body. The dead man was Heinrich Mathy, the most renowned of the German airship commanders, and the perished airship was his redoubtable L-31. Yes, there he lay in death at my feet, the bugaboo of the Zeppelin crews. The first and most ruthless of these pirates of the air, bent on our destruction. We will return to the birds of the First World War shortly, but first, from October the 6th, 1930, we have a story of another airship disaster, this time from the Daily Telegraph and the report of the crashing of the R-101 by Herbert Routh, the Daily Telegraph special correspondent. Beauvais, Sunday night. The giant British airship R101, which left Coddington Airdrome at 7.30 last night for Karachi, now lies a mangled wreck at Alon, a little town four miles south of Beauvais in the Hoise de Department. Of the airship's total complement of crew and passengers, only eight of the 54 aboard have survived the disaster. The wreckage lies in a hollow across a high hedge. All the cars and the forepart of the hull are twisted out of recognition. The stern of the vessel and about a third of its length, however, remain standing with their metalwork practically undisturbed. A Union Jack, which was untouched by the fire, remained for some hours but was removed this afternoon and handed to the British military attaché. The disaster occurred shortly after two o'clock this morning. Inhabitants of Alon had been awakened by the noise of the aircraft's engines. Shortly afterwards, there was a terrific explosion and a blinding flash, and a great yellow glare shot with tongues of flame was seen proceeding from the neighbourhood of Feck Wood. The explosion was so terrific that houses for some distance were shaken. People from Alon and the neighbourhood hurried to the spot to find the great dirigible blazing furiously. Just before the crash, the airship had been flying at about 50 or 60 miles an hour at a height of about a 1,000 feet. A young Frenchwoman, who was one of the first to arrive, said afterwards, What a horrible sight met her eyes. Flames leaped towards the sky, and in vain did the firemen play their hoses on the burning ship. Our final report goes back to 1916, as our eyes continue to look skywards for this report by H.H. Munro, known to his friends as Saki, who was actually killed on the 14th of November 1916. This report from that year is undated. Considering the enormous economic dislocation which the war operations have caused in the regions where the campaign is raging, there seems to be very little corresponding disturbance in the bird life of the same district. Rats and mice have mobilised and swarmed into the fighting line and there's been a partial mobilisation of owls, particularly barn owls, following in the wake of the mice and making laudable efforts to thin out their numbers. What success attends their hunting, one can't estimate. There are always sufficient mice left over to populate one's dugout and make a parade ground and race course of one's face at night. In the matter of nesting accommodation, the barn owls are well provided for. 
Most of the still intact barns in the war zone are requisitioned for billeting purposes, but there is a wealth of ruined houses, whole streets and clusters of them, such as can hardly have been available at any previous moment of the world's history, since Nineveh and Babylon became humanly desolate. Without human occupation and cultivation, there can have been no corn, no refuse, and consequently very few mice, and the owls of Nineveh cannot have enjoyed very good hunting. Here in northern France, the owls have desolation and mice at their disposal in unlimited quantities, and as these birds breed in winter as well as in summer, there should be a goodly output of war owlets to cope with the swarming generations of war mice. Apart from the owls, one cannot notice that the campaign is making any marked difference in the bird life of the countryside. The vast flocks of crows and ravens that once expected to find in the neighbourhood of the fighting line, they're non-existent, which is perhaps rather a pity. The obvious explanation is that the roar and crash and fumes of high explosives have driven the crow tribe in panic from the fighting area. Like many obvious explanations, it is not a correct one. The crows of the locality are not attracted to the battlefield, but they certainly are not scared away from it. The rook is normally so gun-shy and nervous where noise is concerned that the sharp banging of a barn door or the report of a toy pistol will sometimes set an entire rookery in commotion. Out here, I've seen him sedately busy among the refuse heaps of a battered village, with shells bursting at no great distance and the impatient-sounding snapping rattle of machine guns going on all around him, for all the notice that he took, he might have been in some peaceful English meadow on a sleepy Sunday afternoon. Whatever else German frightfulness may have done, it has not frightened the rook of northeastern France. It has made his nerves steadier than they have ever been before, and future generations of small boys, employed in scaring rooks away from the sown crops in the region, will have to invent something in the way of super frightfulness to achieve their purpose. Crows and magpies are nesting well within the shell-swept area, and over a small beech copse I once saw a pair of crows engaged in hot combat with a pair of sparrowhawks while considerably higher in the sky but almost directly above them. Two allied battleplanes were engaging an equal number of enemy aircraft. Unlike the barn owls, the magpies have had their choice of building sites considerably restricted by the ravages of war. The whole avenues of poplars where they were accustomed to construct their nests have been blown to bits, leaving nothing but dreary-looking rows of shattered and splintered trunks to show where they once stood. Affection for a particular tree has in one case induced a pair of magpies to build their bulky dome nest in the battered remnants of a poplar, of which so little remained standing that the nest looked almost bigger than the tree. The effect rather suggested an archiepiscopal enthronement taking place in the ruined remains of Melrose Abbey. The magpie, wary and suspicious in his wild state, must be rather intrigued at the change that has come over the erstwhile fearsome, not-to-be-avoided human, stalking everywhere over the earth as its possessor, who now creeps about in screened and sheltered ways, as chary of showing himself in the open as the shyest of wild creatures. The buzzard, the earnest seeker after mice, does not seem to be taking any war risks. At least, I have never seen him take one out here. But kestrels hover about all day in the hottest parts of the line, not in the least disconcerted, apparently, when a promising mouse area suddenly rises in the air in a cascade of black or yellow earth. 
Sparrowhawks are fairly numerous, and a mile or two back from the firing line I saw a pair of hawks that I took to be red-legged falcons circling over the top of an oak copse. According to investigations made by Russian naturalists, the effect of the war on bird life on the Eastern Front has been more marked than it has been over here. During the first year of the war, rooks disappeared, larks no longer sang in the fields, the wild pigeon disappeared also. The skylark in this region has stuck tenaciously to the meadows and croplands that have been seamed and bisected with trenches and honeycombed with shell holes. In the chill, misty hour of gloom that precedes a rainy dawn, when nothing seemed alive except a few wary waterlogged sentries and many scuttling racks, the lark would suddenly dash skyward and pour forth a song of ecstatic jubilation that sounded horribly forced and insincere. It seemed scarcely possible that the bird could carry its insouciance to the length of attempting to rear a brood in that desolate wreckage of shattered clogs and gaping shell holes. But once, having occasion to throw myself down with some abruptness on my face, I found myself nearly on the top of a brood of young larks. Two of them had already been hit by something and were in rather a battered condition, but the survivors seemed as tranquil and comfortable as the average nestling. At the corner of a stricken wood, which has had a name made for it in history but shall be nameless here, at a moment when lyddite and shrapnel and machine gun fire swept and raked and bespattered the devoted spot as though the artillery of an entire division had suddenly concentrated on it, a wee hen chaffinch flitted wistfully to and fro amid splintered and falling branches that had never a green bow left bow left on them. The wounded lying there, if any of them noticed the small bird, may well have wondered why anything having wings and no pressing reason for remaining should have chosen to stay in such a place. There was a battered orchard alongside the stricken wood, and the probable explanation of the bird's presence was that it had a nest of young ones whom it was too scared to feed, too loyal to desert. Later on, a small flock of chaffinches blundered into the wood, which they were doubtless in the habit of using as a highway to their feeding grounds, unlike the solitary hen-bird, they made no secret of their desire to get away as fast as their day's wits would let them. The only other bird I ever saw there was a magpie, flying low over the wreckage of fallen tree limbs. One for sorrow, says the old superstition. There was sorrow enough in that wood. The English gamekeeper, whose knowledge of wildlife usually runs on limited and per perverted lines, has evolved a sort of religion as to the nervous debility of even the hardest game birds. According to his beliefs, a terrier trotting across a field in which a partridge is nesting or a mouse-hawking kestrel hovering over the hedge is sufficient cause to drive the distracted bird off its eggs and send it whirring into the next county. The partridge of the war zone shows no signs of such sensitive nerves. The rattle and rumble of transport the constant coming and going of bodies of troops, the incessant rassle, rattle of musketry and deafening explosions of artillery, the night-long flare and flicker of star shells have not sufficed to scare the local birds away from their chosen feeding grounds, and to all appearances they have not been deterred from raising their broods. Gamekeepers who are serving with the colours might seize the opportunity to indulge in a little useful nature study.
You've been listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Matias, www.soundimage.org. <laughs>